Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along there in the Bible with me. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, and again, I would ask that you would go with me in prayer, praying to God for His blessing on the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to be mindful of your people, to be mindful of your covenant. We ask you, Lord, coming to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that we would receive it with humility, with fear, with trembling, with meekness. We ask that you would take away every distracting thought, every, um, every way that may seem right to us, and yet, as you have said in your word, in the end is the way of death. We pray, O oh God, that you would um, align our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel recorded in Scripture. We pray that Christ would be exalted. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be honored for the saving work that you have accomplished, and that we might know all of the spiritual blessings that we have been blessed with in you in the heavenly places. Lord Jesus, minister to us this morning through your word and by your spirit, for we pray in your name and for your name's sake. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to read down to verse 14. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will most certainly endure forever. Well, this week as I sat in Starbucks preparing this message, I saw something in front of me. There were two young men sitting at tables about 10 feet apart from each other, and one of the men sneezed, and as I'm reading this passage, the other one shouts out, God bless you. And the man he said, God bless you to, kind of looked at him like he was crazy, like, why would you talk to me? I'm a stranger. And the guy who said, God bless you, looked very sheepish as if he shouldn't have said it and he felt weird about saying it. And it was a very awkward scene as I watched these two men interact with each other all around this guy's sneeze at Starbucks. And as I thought about this, I thought about things that I've often said to this congregation that we have in the English language vocabulary that we often use, that we often use aimlessly or thoughtlessly. God bless you is one of those things. The word bless or blessed or blessing, we, especially Christians, often throw into vocabulary very aimlessly, almost redundantly. And so we say, God bless you, or we say that was such a blessing, or we say it was a mixed blessing. And we have all these phrases in which we use the word blessing, and yet oftentimes we don't think about what a blessing is, what it means to be blessed, and what it costs to be blessed. Well, I think that the Apostle Paul has much to say to us this morning in this passage because what he's going to do is give us a theology of blessing and cursing. That's interesting because the Bible really opens with the concept of blessings and curses. You can't read three chapters in the book of Genesis without coming across the idea of blessing and cursing. At creation, God created all things. He created the animals. And Moses says he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful. 
multiply. And then he did the same thing with man, who was his image bearer. And it was a world of blessing. God had created a world full of his blessing, full of his favor, full of his presence and goodness and glory. And then we come to Genesis 3. And our first parents throw it away. They throw it away. They disobey God. They choose a piece of fruit over the infinitely glorious God. They throw it away and they call down from heaven at covenant curses on the ground, on creation, on the childbearing process of women, on themselves until calling down that greatest of all blessing, death. God says, from dust you are and to dust you will, re- you will return. God had given a sign of that curse, hadn't he? Because man had come from the ground, and so God cursed the ground, and he put thorns and thistles there. He cursed the very place out of which man who had rebelled came. And so now the world, once a garden, once a place full of God's blessing, is now a wilderness. The Bible has much to say about that illustration. The garden became a wilderness. The garden became a place of barrenness, a place of cursing, a place of rejection that God had, in a sense, removed his presence. He had kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from his presence. And so really now man, all men are under a curse. And the Bible is very clear about that. It's not popular to talk about the curse. It's not popular to talk about men being under a curse, being under the righteous judgment and wrath of God. But that is the Bible's testimony. It's the experience of our own lives by nature. Why do things go wrong? Sometimes people use the language of cursing, right? They do something that hurts them. They say, oh, cursed. Sometimes. Sometimes. We use the word more of language we use. He cursed at me. But we are under a curse by nature. The Bible is very clear that Adam brought the curse, the eternal separation between God and man, into this world. And constantly since that fall, men have been trying to gain that blessing back by what they do. Men have been trying in their own strength to gain back that blessing by what they do. And the Galatian problem, the problem in the churches that Paul had planted, we've been looking at this for weeks, the problem with these churches is that they had trusted in Jesus, they had received the blessings of God, they had received all of the blessings by faith, and now they were being moved away by people that said, no, you need Jesus and you need to know what you do. You need to do something to please him. You need to work for his favor. You need Jesus, but you need good works. Really, and Tim Keller gives a very helpful paradigm, the legalists in Galatia had said, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to do good works, and God will accept you. But Paul's paradigm was, you believe in Jesus, God accepts you, and you do good works. Those are the two paradigms. And really, those are the two religions in the world. Religion of doing or the religion of believing and trusting in the works of another. Every religion can be categorized because every religion would fall under law or gospel. Law or gospel. Now, today, Paul is going to walk us through a theology of blessing and curses, And he's going to do so, actually, very strategically. First, he's going to tell us about the law and its curse. He's going to tell us first about the law and its curse. Then he's going to tell us about the gospel and its blessing. And then he's going to tell us about the curse and Jesus, which is the epicenter, which is the heart. If you remember nothing else that I say this morning, remember this. Blessings and curses meet up in one unparalleled moment at the cross where Jesus dies. The curse falls on him. He becomes a curse, Paul will say, so that we might be blessed in him and have every blessing in him by faith. And so Paul is going to lead us in first by telling us about the law and its curse. Notice in verse 10 that he says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, that's 
that ought to strike these people who are hearing this as strange because they were saying, if you want to be blessed by God, you've got to keep God's law. You've got to do those things. You've got to obey him. You've got to walk obediently. And that seems to make sense, doesn't it? It doesn't seem that people that don't obey ought to get blessed. It doesn't seem that people that aren't good ought to get blessing and people that are bad ought to get cursing. That's the way it seems. But Paul says, look, actually the irony is if you trust in what you're doing, you actually get cursed. You're actually under the curse if you rely on the law. You are, God's curse is hanging over you if you're trying to work for his favor. Chances are good. People in this room, at some level, some of you are trusting in what you do. Chances are very good. Maybe you've been in church for 30 years. Maybe 10, maybe 5. Maybe today's the first day you've been here. Chances are good that somebody in this room is relying on what they're doing to try to God, gain God's favor. I've talked to many people, many professing Christians, who when you probe into their issues, they say, but I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. I'm trying. I'm really trying to do what's right. That is the mark that you're trusting in your own works. I'm really trying to do what's right is the mark that you're trusting in your own works. Um, you know, I've said to you many times, when I've talked to unbelievers about how they'll be accepted by God, they'll say, well, you have to have more good works than bad works. And I'll say, well, like 60, 40, you know, 75, 25. How about 51%? 51%. They usually say 51. If you just have one more good work, just one more good work than bad work, you're good. Paul's actually going to tell us the way that the law of God works. So everything in the Bible, in the first five books, he gives the law. He gives 613 of them through Moses. And he commands them to obey them. They say, he says, obey the law. And so it seems pretty obvious that men would then try to obey it. But notice what Paul says about the law itself. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, who does not abide by all things. It's one word in Greek. Pas. One word. All things written in the book of the law to do them. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, if you want to get the blessing of God through keeping the law, you have to keep all of it. Now, this is huge. This, for me, was life-changing. When I, as a new Christian, learned that God demanded perfect obedience to the law, and if you want to get the blessing, you've got to keep all of it perfectly, that was freeing, because I haven't kept it perfectly. And so it forced me to look to another who did for me. It forced me to look for another way, another way of salvation, another way of being justified and accepted because I knew I couldn't keep that law. James says if you break one, you break all of it. If you break one, you break all of it. It's like a window. The illustration of the boy throwing a ball through a window, one sheet of glass, if it goes through one part, the whole thing's ruined. The whole thing needs to be replaced. The law of God is to be kept perfectly. God demands perfect, perpetual, constant, eternal obedience to his law if you want to be accepted. And if you think you can do that, Paul tells you that if you fail at one point, and we all have, that you are cursed for not abiding in all things written in the book of the law to do them. You see, God gave the law to, yes, set out his standard of holiness, but he gave the law to show us that we couldn't keep it, that we weren't good enough. He gave the law as a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus Christ, to drive us, to, to say, you're sinful. You know, it's actually very paradigmatic the way the gospel works. We think, by nature, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. But what God wants us to, to know is that you're so not good enough. 
you're so bad, you're so sick spiritually that you have to just take freely the gracious work of Jesus Christ that he's done for you. And that's beautiful. Most people don't want to be told they're bad. Christians love being told they're bad. If you're visiting here and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, Christians declare boldly that we are sinful. We are not good people. Heaven is full of people who are not good. And Paul's going to say, by nature, because of the law and the nature of the law, men are under a curse. They are cursed. They have the curse resting on them. They are cursed by God. But then notice what Paul says in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. What is Paul doing? Paul is reaching back to the book of Habakkuk. It's an Old Testament prophet. And there's a little verse there where Habakkuk says the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's saying to the Judaizers, to the legalists who are saying you've got to keep the law, he's saying, look, that was never the point. Habakkuk, one of our Old Testament prophets, said the just shall live by faith. Faith in Christ is not something that happens in the New Covenant era after Jesus comes. It's the way it's always been. It was always God's intention. God only and always accepted men by faith and faith alone in the coming Redeemer. That was always God's plan. Faith, again, remember, is holding out empty hands and receiving what Christ has done. It's not actually doing anything. Faith is not doing. Faith is contrary to doing. Faith is receiving and resting. It is saying, Lord, you do as you have promised. You do as you have promised. It's not actually doing, and so Paul says it's evident, quoting Habakkuk, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you, like the Judaizers, are trying to put yourself under some kind of systems of works, righteousness, and working for your salvation... Paul's saying then you need to abide in that system and you need to do it perfectly. You need to abide in it. You need to continue in it. You need to live by it. You need to do it perfectly. The law is a harsh master for sinners like us. John Bunyan has that great poem, Run, John, run, the law demands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Run, John, run, the law demands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. The law does not help you obey. The law tells you what God requires. It doesn't propel you. It doesn't give you any power. It doesn't give you any change. It doesn't change you to know what you're supposed to do. In fact, it reflects on us how far short we've fallen in it. And so Paul is saying, look, don't get it wrong. If you try justification by the law, you're not going to get it because it's by faith. John Calvin has a great quote. He says, it is easier to mingle fire and water than to bring together justification by faith and justification by works. It would be easier for you to join together fire and water than to bring together justification by faith and justification by works. And that's what Paul's saying here. The law, by nature, is different than faith. Works, by nature, are different than faith. Yes, we need works. We're called to be new creatures that walk in newness of life and and carry out the good works that God has called for us, but they are not the grounds of our justification. They are not the basis of our justification. God doesn't look and say, Nick has been good enough, pretty much. Well, maybe. I'll accept him. He doesn't do that. He tells us in his word that the law, with its demand for perfect obedience, says you are not good enough. By nature, the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. 
Well, what does Paul mean secondly, now when he speaks about faith and the blessing, what does he mean the law is not a faith and the just shall live by faith? Well, we've seen that through the weeks past that we begin the Christian life by trusting in Jesus and we continue the Christian life by trusting in Jesus. Every day when you wake up, Every day when you get up for work, when you wake up and you're tired and you're groggy and you don't want to go to work, you ought to begin your day by saying with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. The life I now live, I live by faith. Listen, it is freeing. It is actually freeing when this has come to bear on your hearts and minds, that it's not what you do that gains God's favor. It's actually freeing to know that your life is looking and trusting to another. Now, for the natural man, the natural man hates that because that's an assault to his pride. There have been multitudes of people who have said things like, I would never trust in another to help me. Lance Armstrong, the biker, says those sorts of things. Lots of people say that. A weak person trusts in somebody to help them. That's right. Sinful people trust in somebody to help them. Weak people, people that don't have in themselves the strength to be pleasing to God or any righteousness. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. And so we look by faith outside of ourselves. I love how Luther says it. Faith is looking outside of yourself. Faith is looking outside of yourself. You know, looking at my own life, my own struggles, my own needs, I find that when I'm looking within or I'm looking at circumstances around me, I fail most miserably. You remember that account with Peter on the water? I love this. I've been thinking about it all the time now. Jesus is walking to the disciples on the storm at night, and Peter says, who is it? They think it's a ghost, and he says, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter says, if it is you, Lord, let me come to you. And Jesus says, come, step out. So Peter steps out on the water, and he's walking to Jesus on the water, but he sees the wind and the waves, and he starts to focus on that. And he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he sinks. You know, I think God has given us that account. Jesus comes, doesn't he? He puts down his hand. Peter doesn't fix himself. He doesn't do anything to get saved. Jesus comes and stretches out his hand and takes him and pulls him up. Faith, the nature of faith is that it looks to another. It looks to another. Remember the account of the mustard seed. The disciples come to Jesus. They say, Lord, increase our faith. I'm sure if you're a Christian, everybody in this room has prayed that prayer before. Oh, God, give me more faith. Give me more faith. Give me greater faith. Give me stronger faith. And Jesus says, look, it's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, what's the point? It's not about the faith itself. It's about the Christ that the faith looks to. It's the one that the faith trusts. He says you can move this mountain into the sea. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object. Of our faith. It's Christ. And so faith looks away from self. Law and us trying to be under the law and trying to do and work look within. Faith looks without. It looks to another. It looks to the works of another. And so Paul has told us when you do that, notice verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You get justification, you get sanctification, you get the Spirit, you get everything by faith in Christ Jesus. You get everything. Everything that the the Judaizers were trying to get in their own works, Paul says it's all in Jesus, and it's all yours by faith. 
All the blessings of God, the presence of God, the nearness of God, the intimacy of fellowship with God, the the communion with Jesus Christ, the knowledge of sins forgiven, the knowledge that the Spirit of God dwells in you is all yours. Every blessing in the heavenly places, every blessing God confers on His people in Christ by faith. And I'm going to say, before I move to Christ and the curse, that that's because God will be honored in what he does. On Judgment Day, no one who is entering into glory because of Jesus will be able to say, I did it, Lord. Look what I did. Look at my good works. They will say, the Lamb is all the glory. The Lamb is all the glory. Christ has paid it all. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. On Judgment Day, none of us will be able to say, look at all my good works, Lord. I used to say, when I would witness to people in New Jersey, um, you play sports. And they'd say, yeah, I play sports. I play soccer. I play baseball. I'd say, if you score the winning goal, if you do that, who gets the glory? they say, I do. And I'd say, if Jesus accomplishes salvation apart from anything you do, who gets the glory? And I had this one girl named Melanie. I'll never forget it. She'd grown up Roman Catholic. She was angry that I was out witnessing to people and she said, and I said, Melanie, do you play soccer? She said, yeah. I said, who gets, the, who gets the glory if you score the winning goal? She said, I do. I said, who gets the glory if he accomplishes salvation apart from anything you do? She said, he does. Like she had never had anybody explain. The nature of faith is that Christ gets all the glory and you get all the blessing. You get all the blessing. He gets all the glory. It's a harmonious, beautiful work of redemption. And all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe in the Son of God. Do you believe in the Son of God that you might be blessed? And so Paul now, taking us deeper, thirdly and finally, he takes us into the inner workings. How do we move from the curse of the law to the blessing of faith? How do we move from being under a curse to being blessed with every spiritual blessing? And Paul is going to give us the greatest explanation of the gospel in the whole Bible. This verse has actually been said by theologians to be the greatest explanation of what happened at the cross in the whole Bible. And notice what he says. Look at verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, there is only one who is infinitely lovely, who is infinitely blessed. There is only one that God the Father could say definitively, apart from anything that anyone else did, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said it about His Son, Jesus Christ, at His baptism. On the transfiguration, He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But at the cross, He said, this is my cursed Son with whom I am displeased. This is my cursed son, whom I hate with all of my righteous hatred and anger because of you and because of me, because he stood in our place. It's actually stronger language than him saying, Christ got a curse. He actually says Christ was made a curse. He actually himself became a curse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. It's the only other place where that strong language is used. Christ was made a curse for us. 
He was made a curse. The infinitely lovely one. The one who had unbroken fellowship with the Father from all eternity. The one that ever delighted to rejoice in his Father's face from the ages and endless ages of eternity. Rejoicing in his Father became a curse at the cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The idea of blessing is really most uh, encapsulated in that high priestly benediction. It's Benediction is a good word, a blessing that Aaron the priest was to pronounce on the people. He would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that blessing comes to you and to me because the father lifts up his hands on the son. He places a cup before him, a cup of cursing and bitterness in the garden of Gethsemane. And the father says, the Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord hide his face from you. The Lord make all his curses fall upon you and may you be cursed with every cursing. At the cross, Jesus is cursed with every cursing. And you know what? The unbeliever hates to hear that, but the Christian delights in it. The Christian looks at the cross and the greatest place of rest and refreshment for our souls is in the knowledge that Jesus became a curse for us. When you're battling with sin, let me bring this home to you. You're battling with sin. You're battling with the guilt that you feel over something you've done. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a state. The feeling of guilt accompanies the state of being guilty. But when you are guilty from sin and you feel guilty and you feel shame and you feel discouraged and you feel condemned, you look to the Christ who was cursed. You go to him and you realize that he was cursed so that you would be blessed. He was cursed so that you would be blessed. He received all of the wrath of God. I love the illustration of the field, the wheat field on fire. I've been told, I, I don't know this, but I've been told that once a fire starts in a wheat field, if it starts anywhere on the inside at all, the safest place to be is where the fire has already burned. The safest place to be in a field that's on fire is where the fire has already burned. That's what happened at the cross. The fire of God's wrath was put out on Jesus so that if we are in him, we are safe. If we are in him, we are blessed. If we are in him, we have every blessing. You know, I'll close with this. Um, the Bible sets out constantly two, two things. Life, death, blessing, curses, faith, works, spirit, flesh, broad way, narrow way. You can go through the Bible two ways, two ways, two roads. Um, I often hear people say, I think God is big enough to have many ways of salvation. That's a common man-centered thing to say. I think God is big enough to actually have many ways of salvation. And Christians ought to usually combat it by saying, no, God only has one way of salvation. Now, I'm going to say this. This may be shocking. God actually has two ways to life. So he doesn't have many ways. There's not just one way. There's actually two. Either you keep the law perfectly or you look to the one who did and became a curse for you on the tree. It's two ways you can be saved. In this room today, I'm, I'm the broader pastor. I'll give you two ways. Either keep the law perfectly or you look to the Christ who was cursed for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to come off of my own righteousness and trust in him because he's done it all. And all the blessings of God come to us only through Jesus Christ. We get the spirit. You get God indwelling you. You get all the blessings of Abraham. You become heir of all things because he was cursed 
as the worst sinner that ever lived, though he had knew, though he knew no sin. Think about this, and I'll, I will close with this. The God who had to pronounce the curse, he had to. When Adam sinned, God's not a mean, vindictive, angry guy in the sky. God had to pronounce the curse because the curse was commensurate with the actions of Adam. When Adam sinned, he called down those curses justly. God had to send death. The wages of sin, our little children learned this this week, the wages of sin is death. Sin has to be met with death. That's the punishment. That's the just penalty. There could be no other penalty. The God that had to pronounce that curse on Adam took that curse on himself. Let me just give you this as we close. Genesis 3. Adam sins. God says, you will now work the cursed ground that has thorns and thistles. By the, spread of, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. He said to the woman, in pain, you will bring forth children. In childbirth, you will bring forth children. And then he said to both of them, essentially, from dust you were and to dust you shall return. Toil, labor, sweat, thorns, pain in childbearing and death. And what does Jesus do? And follow me very closely because this is the last thing I'm saying. Jesus sweats great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane while he works for our redemption. He wears the crown of thorns on the cross as he becomes a curse for us. He undergoes death itself, and interestingly, he is born of a woman who would labor and travail, and he would, in a sense, show that he is in every way identifying himself with those under the curse. The one who pronounced that curse became a curse for us, that we might be blessed in him. Now, as you go, two applications. Look to him in faith, and two, when you speak of blessings, think about everything involved in the reception of those blessings, when we use the words that we use, when we say, God bless you, when we say um, blessings, or that was such a blessing, or that was a mixed blessing, think about what blessing actually costs, what it involves, what the nature of the blessing of faith actually is. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning to the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a marvelous word that you, the eternally blessed God, would become the eternally cursed one on the cross. We thank you for glorious substitution, Lord Jesus, that you would stand in our place and take our punishment. That is good news. It is rest for our souls. We thank you that you have given us your spirit. We pray that we would know your blessings in a greater measure, O God, that you would cause each one here who has faith to know the greatness of the blessings they have through the cursed Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Fix our eyes on you this week ahead. Build us up. Enable us to run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto you, the one who has made a curse for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.